Streams of Silver, Book 3, Trails Anew In my travels on the surface, I once met a man who wore his religious beliefs like a badge of honor upon the sleeves of his tunic. I am a gunsman, he proudly told me as we sat beside each other in a tavern bar, I sipping my wine, and he, I fear, partaking a bit too much of his more potent drink. He went on to explain the premise of his religion, his very reason for being, that all things were based in science, in mechanics, and in discovery. He even asked if he could take a piece of my flesh, that he might study it to determine why the skin of the drow elf is black. What element is missing? he wondered. That makes your race different from your surface kin. I think that the gonsman honestly believed his claim that if he could merely find the various elements that comprise the drow skin, he might effect a change in that pigmentation to make the dark elves become more akin to their surface relatives. And, given his devotion, almost fanaticism, it seemed to me as if he felt he could effect a change in more than physical appearance. Because, in his view of the world, all things could be so explained and corrected. How could I even begin to enlighten him to the complexity? How could I show him the variations between drow and surface self in the very view of the world resulting from eons of walking widely disparate roads? To a gonsman fanatic, everything can be broken down, taken apart, and put back together. Even a wizard's magic might be no more than a way of conveying universal energies, and that, too, might one day be replicated. My gonsman companion promised me that he and his fellow inventor priests would one day replicate every spell in any wizard's repertoire, using natural elements in a proper combination. But there was no mention of the discipline any wizard must attain as he perfects his craft. There was no mention of the fact that powerful wizard's magic is not given to anyone, but rather is earned, day by day, year by year, and decade by decade. It is a lifelong pursuit with a gradual increase in power, as mystical as it is secular. So it is with the warrior. The gonsman spoke of some weapon called the arquebus, a tubular missile thrower with many times the power of the strongest crossbow. Such a weapon strikes terror into the heart of a true warrior, and not because he fears that he will fall victim to it, and even that he fears that it will one day replace him. Such weapons offend because the true warrior understands that while one is learning how to use a sword, one should also be learning why and when to use a sword. To grant the power of a weapon master to anyone at all, without effort, without training and proof that the lessons have taken hold, is to deny the responsibility that comes with such power. Of course, there are wizards and warriors who perfect their craft without learning the level of emotional discipline to accompany it, and certainly, there are those who attain great prowess in either profession to the detriment of all the world. Artemis and Treri seems a perfect example. But these individuals are, thankfully, rare, and mostly because their emotional lacking will be revealed early in their careers, and it often brings about a fairly abrupt downfall. But if the gonsman has his way, if his errant view of paradise should come to fruition, then all the years of training will mean little. Any fool could pick up an arquebus or some other powerful weapon and summarily destroy a skilled warrior, or any child could utilize a gonsman's magic machine and replicate a fireball, perhaps, and burn down half a city. When I pointed out some of my fears to the gonsman, he seemed shocked, not at the devastating possibilities, but rather at my, as he put it, arrogance. 
The inventions of the priests of Gond will make all equal, he declared. We will lift up the lowly peasant. Hardly. All that the Gondsman and his cronies would do is ensure death and destruction at a level heretofore unknown across the realms. There was nothing more to be said, for I knew that the man would never hear my words. He thought me, or, for that matter, anyone who achieved a level of skill in fighting or magic arts arrogant, because he could not appreciate the sacrifice and dedication necessary for such an achievement. Arrogant? If the gunsman's so-called lowly peasant came to me with the desire to learn the fighting arts, I would gladly teach him. I would revel in his successes as much as in my own. But I would demand, always I would demand, a sense of humility, dedication, and an understanding of this power I was teaching, an appreciation of the potential for destruction. I would teach no one who did not continue to display an appropriate level of compassion and community. To learn how to use a sword, one must first master when to use a sword. There was one other error in the gonsman's line of reasoning, I believe, on a purely emotional level. If machines replace achievement, then to what will people aspire? And who are we, truly, without such goals? Beware the engineers of society, I say, who would make everyone in all the world equal. Opportunity should be equal, must be equal, but achievement must remain individual. Drizzt Duarden Chapter 16. Days of Old A squat stone tower stood in a small dell against the facing of a steep hill. Because it was ivy-covered and overgrown, a casual passerby would not even have noticed the structure. But the companions of the hall were not casual in their search. This was the herald's holdfast, possibly the solution to their entire search. "'Are you certain that this is the place?' Regis asked Drist as they peered over a small bluff. Truly the ancient tower appeared more a ruin. Not a thing stirred anywhere nearby, not even animals— as though an eerie, reverent hush surrounded the place. "'I am sure,' Drizzt replied. "'Feel the age of the tower. It has stood for many centuries. Many centuries.' "'And how long has it been empty?' Bruner asked, thus far disappointed in the place that had been described to him as the brightest promise of his goal. "'It is not empty,' Drizzt replied, "'unless the information I received was in error.' Bruner jumped to his feet and stormed over the bluff. "'Probably right,' he grumbled. "'Some troll or scab yet is inside the door watching us right now, I'll wager, drooling for us to come in. Let's be on with it, then. Sunderbar's a day more away than when we left.' The dwarf's three friends joined him on the remnants of the overgrown path that had once been a walkway to the tower's door. They approached the ancient stone door cautiously, with weapons drawn. Moss-covered and worn to a smooth finish by the toll of time. Apparently, it hadn't been opened in many, many years. "'Use your arms, boy,' Bruner told Wolfgar. "'If any man can get this thing open, it's yourself.' Wolfgar leaned Aegis Fang against the wall and moved before the huge door. He set his feet as best he could and ran his hands across the stone in search of a good niche to push against. But as soon as he applied the slightest pressure to the stone portal, it swung inward, silently and without effort. A cool breeze wafted out of the still darkness within, carrying a blend of unfamiliar scents and an aura of great age. The friends sensed the place as otherworldly, belonging to a different time, perhaps, 
and it was not without a degree of trepidation that Drizzt led them in. They stepped lightly, though their footfalls echoed in the quiet darkness. The daylight beyond the door offered little relief, as though some barrier remained between the inside of the tower and the world beyond. We should light a torch, Regis began, but he stopped abruptly, frightened by the unintentional volume of his whisper. The door, Wolfgar cried suddenly, noticing that the silent portal had begun to close behind them. He leaped to grab it before it shut completely, sinking them into absolute darkness, but even his great strength could not deny the magical force that moved it. It shut without a bang, just a hushed rush of air that resounded like a giant sigh. The lightless tomb they all envisioned as the huge door blocked out the final slit of sunlight did not come to pass, for as soon as the door closed, a blue glow lit up the room, the entrance hall to the herald's holdfast. No words could they speak above the profound awe that enveloped them. They stood in view of the history of the race of man within a bubble of timelessness that denied their own perspectives of age and belonging. In the blink of an eye, they had been propelled into the position of removed observers, their own existence suspended in a different time and place, looking in on the passing of the human race as might a god. Intricate tapestries, their once vivid colors faded and their distinct lines now blurred, swept the friends into a fantastic collage of images that displayed the tales of the race, each one retelling a story again and again, the same tale, it seemed, but subtly altered each time to present different principles and varied outcomes. Weapons and armor of every age lined the walls beneath the standards and crests of a thousand long-forgotten kingdoms, Boss-relief images of heroes and sages, some familiar but most unknown to any but the most studious of scholars, stared down at them from the rafters, their captured visages precise enough to emote the very character of the men they portrayed. A second door, this one of wood, hung directly across the cylindrical chamber from the first, apparently leading into the hill beyond the tower. Only when it began to swing open did the companions manage to break free of the spell of the place. None went for their weapons, though, understanding that whoever or whatever inhabited this tower would be beyond such earthly strength. An ancient man stepped into the room, older than anyone they'd ever seen before. His face had retained its fullness, not hollowed with age, but his skin appeared almost wooden in texture, with lines that seemed more like cracks, and a rough edge that defied time as stubbornly as an ancient tree. His walk was more a flow of quiet movement, a floating passing that transcended the definition of steps. He came in close to the friends and waited, his arms obviously thin under the folds of his long, satiny robe, peacefully dropped to his sides. "'Are you the herald of the tower?' Drizzt asked. "'Old knight I am,' the man replied in a voice singing with serenity. "'Welcome, companions of the hall,' The Lady Illustrial informed me of your coming, and of your quest. Even consumed in the solemn respect of his surroundings, Wolfgar did not miss the reference to Illustrial. He glanced over at Drizzt, meeting the drow's eyes with a knowing smile. Drizzt turned away and smiled too. This is the chamber of man, Old Knight proclaimed. The largest in the Holdfast, except for the library, of course he noticed Brunner's disgruntled scowl. "'The tradition of your race runs deep, good dwarf, and deeper yet does the elves,' he explained. "'But crisis in history 
are more often measured in generations than in centuries. The short-lived humans may have toppled a thousand kingdoms and built a thousand more in the few centuries that a single dwarven king would rule his people in peace. No patience, Brunner huffed, apparently appeased. <laughs> Agreed, laughed Old Knight. But come now, let us dine. We have much to do this night. He led them through the doorway and down a similarly lit hallway. Doors on either side of them identified the various chambers as they passed, one for each of the goodly races, and even a few for the history of orcs and goblins and the giant kind. The friends and old knight supped at a huge round table, its ancient wood as hard as mountain stone. Runes were inscribed all around its edge, many in tongues long lost to the world that even old knight could not remember. The food, like everything else, gave the impression of a distant past. Far from stale, though, it was delicious with a flavor somewhat different from anything the friends had ever eaten before. The drink, a crystalline wine, possessed a rich bouquet surpassing even the legendary elixirs of the elves. Old Knight entertained them as they ate, retelling grand tales of ancient heroes and of events that had shaped the realms into their present state. The companions were an attentive audience, though in all probability, substantial clues about Mithra Hall loomed only a door or two away. When the meal was finished, Old Knight rose from his chair and looked around at them with a weird, curious intensity. "'The day will come, a millennium from now, perhaps, when I shall entertain again. On that day, I am sure one of the tales I'll tell will concern the companions of the hall and their glorious quest.' The friends could not reply to the honor that the ancient man had paid them. Even Drizzt, even keeled and unshakable, sat unblinking for a long, long moment. Come, Old Knight instructed. Let your road begin anew. He led them through another door, the door to the greatest library in all the north. Volumes, thick and thin, covered the walls and lay about in high piles on the many tables positioned throughout the large room. Old Knight indicated one particular table, a smaller one off to the side with a solitary book opened upon it. "'I have done much of your research for you,' Old Knight explained, "'and in all the volumes concerning dwarves, this was the only one I could find that held any reference to Mithril Hall.' Brunner moved to the book, grasping its edges with trembling hands. It was written in High Dwarven, the language of Dumathoin, keeper of the secrets under the mountain, a script nearly lost in the realms. But Brunner could read it. He surveyed the page quickly, then read aloud the passage of concern. King Elmore and his people profited mightily from the labors of Garum and the kin of Clan Battlehammer, but the dwarves of the secret mines did not refute Elmore's gains. Settlestone proved a valuable and trustworthy ally whence Garum could begin the secret trail to market of the Mithril works. Brunner looked up at his friends, a gleam of revelation in his eye. Settlestone, he whispered. I know that name. He dove back into the book. You shall find little else, Old Knight said. 
for the words of Mithril Hall are lost to the ages. The book merely states that the flow of Mithril soon ceased to the ultimate demise of Settlestone. Brunner wasn't listening. He had to read it for himself, to devour every word penned about his lost heritage, no matter the significance. What is this Settlestone? Wolfgar asked Old Knight. A clue? Perhaps, the old herald replied. Thus far I have found no reference to the place other than this book, but I am inclined to believe from the work that Settlestone was rather unusual for a dwarven town. Above the ground, Brunner suddenly cut in. Yes, agreed Old Knight. A dwarven community housed in structures above the ground, rare these days, and unheard of back in the time of Mithril Hall. Only two possibilities to my knowledge. Regis let out a cry of victory. Your enthusiasm may be premature, remarked Old Knight. Even if we discern where Settlestone once lay, the trail to Mithril Hall merely begins there. Bruner flipped through a few pages of the book, then replaced it on the table. So close, he growled, slamming his fist down on the petrified wood. And I should know. Driz moved over to him and pulled a vial out from under his cloak. A potion, he explained to Bruner's puzzled look, that will make you walk again in the days of Mithril Hall. A mighty spell, warned Old Knight, and not to be controlled. Consider its use carefully, good dwarf. Brunner was already moving, teetering on the verge of discovery he had to find. He quaffed the liquid in one gulp, then steadied himself on the edge of the table against its potent kick. Sweat beaded on his wrinkled brow, and he twitched involuntarily as the potion sent his mind drifting back across the centuries. Regis and Wolfgar moved over to him, the big men clasping his shoulders and easing him into a seat. Brunner's eyes were wide open, but he saw nothing in the room before him. Sweat lathered him now, and the twitch had become a tremble. Brunner? Driz called softly, wondering if he'd done right in presenting the dwarf with such a tempting opportunity. No, me father! Brunner screamed. Not here in the darkness! Come with me, then! What might I do without ya? Brunner! Driz called more emphatically. He is not here, Old Knight explained, familiar with the potion for it was often used by long-lived races, particularly elves, when they sought memories of their distant past. Normally, the imbibers returned to a more pleasant time, though. Old Knight looked on with grave concern, for the potion had returned Brunner to a wicked day in his past, a memory that his mind had blocked out, or at least blurred, to defend him against powerful emotions. Those emotions would be laid bare now, revealed to the dwarf's conscious mind in all their fury. Bring him to the chamber of the dwarves, Old Knight instructed. Let him bask in the images of his heroes. They will aid in remembering and give him strength throughout his ordeal. Wolfgar lifted Brunner and bore him gently down the passage to the chamber of the dwarves, laying him in the center of the circular floor. The friends backed away, leaving the dwarf to his delusions. Brunner could only half see the images around him now, caught between the worlds of the past and present. 
Images of Moradin, Dumathoin, and all his deities and heroes looked down upon him from their perches in the rafters, adding a small bit of comfort against the wages of tragedy. Dwarven-sized suits of armor and cunningly crafted axes and warhammers surrounded him, and he bathed in the presence of the highest glories of his proud race. The images, though, could not dispel the horror he now knew again, the falling of his clan, of Mithril Hall, of his father. "'Daylight!' he cried, torn between relief and lament. "'Alas for me father, and me father's father! But yea, our escape is at hand!' Set a stone. He faded from consciousness for a moment, overcome. Shelter us. The loss. The loss. Shelter us. The price is high, said Wolfgar, pained at the dwarf's torment. He is willing to pay, Drizzt replied. It will be a sorry payment if we learn nothing, said Regis. There is no direction to his ramblings. Are we to sit by and hope against hope? His memories have already brought him to Settlestone, with no mention of the trail behind him, Wolfgar observed. Drizzt drew a scimitar and pulled the cowl of his cloak low over his face. What? Regis started to ask, but the drow was already moving. He rushed to Bruner's side and put his face close to the dwarf's sweat-lathered cheek. I am a friend, he whispered to Bruner. Come at the news of the falling of the hall. My allies await. Vengeance will be ours, mighty dwarf of Clan Battlehammer. Show us the way so that we might restore the glories of the hall. Secret, Brunner gasped on the edge of consciousness. Drizzt pressed harder. Time is short. The darkness is falling, he shouted. The way, dwarf. We must know the way. Brunner mumbled some inaudible words, and all the friends gasped in the knowledge that the drow had broken through the final mental barrier that hindered Brunner from finding the hall. Louder, Drizzt insisted. Fourth peak, Brunner screamed back. Up the high run and into Keeper's Dale. Drizzt looked over to Old Knight, who was nodding in recognition, then turned back to Brunner. Rest, mighty dwarf, he said comfortingly. Your clan shall be avenged. With the description the book gives of Settlestone, Fourth Peak can describe only one place. Old Knight explained Drizzt and Wolfgar when they got back to the library. Regis remained in the chamber of the dwarves to watch over Bruner's fretful sleep. The herald pulled a scroll tube down from a high shelf and unrolled the ancient parchment it held, a map of the central northland between Silvery Moon and Mirabar. The only dwarven settlement in the time of Mithril Hall above ground, and close enough to a mountain range to give a reference to a numbered peak, would be here, he said, marking the southernmost peak on the southernmost spur of the spine of the world, just north of Nesmi and the Evermores. The deserted city of stone is simply called the Ruins now, and it was commonly known as Dwarven Darrows when the bearded race lived there. But the ramblings of your companion have convinced me that this is indeed the settlestone that the book speaks of. Why then would the book not refer to it as Dwarven Darrow? asked Wolfgar. Dwarves are a secretive race, Old Knight explained with a knowing chuckle. 
especially where treasure is concerned. Garum of Mithril Hall was determined to keep the location of his trove hidden from the greed of the outside world. He and Elmore of Settlestone no doubt worked out an arrangement that included intricate codes and constructed names to reference their surroundings, anything to throw prying mercenaries off the trail. Names that now appear in disjointed places throughout the tomes of dwarven history. Many scholars have probably even read of Mithril Hall, called by some other name that the readers assumed referred to another of the many ancient dwarven homelands now lost to the world. The herald paused for a moment to digest everything that had occurred. You should be away at once, he advised. Carry the dwarf if you must, but get him to Settlestone before the effects of the potion wear away. Walking in his memories, Bruner might be able to retrace his steps of two hundred years ago back up the mountains to Keeper's Dale and to the gates of Mithril Hall. Drizzt studied the map and the spot that Old Knight had marked as the location of Settlestone. Back to the west, he muttered, echoing illustrial suspicions. Barely two days' march from here. Wolfgar moved in close to view the parchment and added in a voice that held both anticipation with a measure of sadness. Our road nears its end.